Welcome to Public Health On Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Our focus is the novel coronavirus. I'm Josh Sharfstein, a faculty member at Johns Hopkins and also a former secretary of Maryland's health department. Our goal with this podcast is to bring evidence and experts to help you understand today's news about the novel coronavirus and what it means for tomorrow. If you have questions, you can email them to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. That's publichealthquestion at jhu.edu for future podcast episodes. Today I'm talking to Dr. Lisa Maragakis, the Senior Director of Infection Prevention for the Johns Hopkins Health System, about how hospitals are preparing to care for patients with COVID-19, the illness caused by the novel coronavirus. Let's listen. Dr. Marigakis, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. It's really an honor. So um, tell me a little bit about your job here at Johns Hopkins Medicine. Sure. So I am an infectious disease physician and a faculty member in the School of Medicine. Um, My primary role, however, is uh, as Senior Director of Infection Prevention for the Johns Hopkins Hospital and the Johns Hopkins Health System. So um, that's a big job, and it's even bigger with the novel coronavirus. So tell me a little bit about what is on your mind as you think about preparing Johns Hopkins for a potentially new type of infection. Sure. Well, um, my colleagues and I in infection prevention are always focused on preventing infections amongst our patients, our staff, our visitors, um, and that threat can take a variety of forms. It can be device-related infections, procedure-related infections. So we work a lot on um, policies and interventions to make sure that everyone's doing all we can to prevent infections. When something like the novel coronavirus comes along, it presents an enormous challenge uh, just for preparedness in the hospital setting and in the health um, healthcare delivery system at large, um, really thinking about every aspect of how a respiratory virus might be transmitted and taking steps to prevent that. So um, let's talk about what that looks like in practice. Um, you must be worried that someone with this might come into the, uh, or maybe worried is the wrong word, you must be thinking that someone like this might just come into the emergency department with a cough. Um, from an infection control perspective, what does that bring up right away? You're absolutely right. Um, the, the most important principle when, when we are um, in the period preparing for a pandemic uh, is to think about how we're going to be able to identify patients who are at risk. Um, we have several strategies. Um, one strategy is travel screening. So at the beginning, when there were certain countries that had ongoing transmission of the novel coronavirus, we implemented travel screening um, so that we would be aware and ask every patient who presents to our emergency department or a clinic or really any portal of entry uh, to our system about international travel in the preceding two weeks. Um, And then if they had that international travel, then we proceeded to ask them about their symptoms um, and thereby try to identify who was at the highest risk um, and had some epidemiologic link and symptoms that would be concerning for coronavirus disease. Um, As the 
virus has spread around the world, it's been um, more difficult um, because uh, we would say the epidemiologic link has been broken. It's a little bit harder to tell who might be at risk uh, when it's more widespread. So how does that change practice? Somebody comes into a clinic, what, what are you advising? So it changes the challenge. It makes it uh, an enormous challenge, actually. We're still in the middle of respiratory virus season, so we have patients coming in regularly. With flu, um, right. other viruses. Absolutely. Respiratory symptoms are, are very common uh, amongst the general public and our patients. Um, and so then looking for the novel coronavirus um, becomes uh, a little bit like a needle in a haystack. Um, we turn more then to strategies like standard precautions. Uh, knowing that we have to assume that almost anyone could have uh, the virus, whether it's influenza or this novel coronavirus, and um, make sure that we take all kinds of precautions, including excellent hand hygiene, washing our hands frequently, using al um, alcohol-based hand sanitizers, um, really advising people to be very mindful about being in close proximity with someone who is coughing and sneezing, uh, using something like respiratory etiquette, which really is a, a term that we use to encompass all kinds of uh, strategies, covering coughs and sneezes, making sure that we wash our hands and things like that. But for patient care it is really, uh, we need to turn to personal protective equipment. Got it. So. Um during this period, um, when testing is not widely available yet. That's been a huge challenge. Yeah, tell me a little bit about that. Right. So um, all of the testing ha so far has been um, concentrated in the hands of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. So uh, there's been a delay and a, a need to call the state um, health department, have a conversation, uh, collect samples, send the samples to the state and then to the CDC, it's, and so it's taking a matter of days to get results. Um, more recently, just really within the last um, several weeks, uh, test kits were sent out to state health departments. Unfortunately, some of those didn't work right. and, and had to be um, taken back to the drawing board. So it has been a frustrating um, a roadblock, really, to be able to our ability to be able to tell who has this virus. As, as testing stands up, and probably testing will eventually be able to happen right here in the hospital. Right, that's um, the goal. Then you'll have to come up with new protocols for in this process of universal precautions when you're actually looking for the uh, novel coronavirus. Exactly. So um, if tests were more widely available and if results could um, be obtained more quickly, then we would be able to tell um, who has the virus, who doesn't have the virus, and, and uh, take actions based on that. So one of the important jobs of infection control is protecting the people who work in the hospital. Right. And there's so many great nurses and doctors, but there are also great respiratory therapists, great um, janitorial staff, you know, custodial staff. There's so many people who are devoted to the mission of taking care of others at Johns Hopkins and at other places. Absolutely, and it's a team, a team approach. Yeah, right. and so it's an enormous responsibility thinking about this to, to protect them, especially given the fact that in other countries there have been quite a number of healthcare workers and people in hospital settings who have been infected. So how, how do you talk to the team here? How do you think about that responsibility? 
Right. Well, you're you're absolutely right that that it is uh, an enormous task to really think about the whole operation and everyone who's involved, um, everyone who works here, no matter what our job might be, um, comes in contact with our patients and, and visitors and our colleagues and staff uh, on a regular basis. So a lot of it, of it is the challenge of sharing information, making sure that everyone has access to the latest information about the current situation. Um, and our guidance and public health guidance about how to protect yourself, your family, and your colleagues. Um, and then specific guidance in the healthcare setting about how to protect patients um, and to take precautions so that we ourselves don't pick up the virus and then transmit it uh, to others. So, you know, one of the challenges from like California is they had a patient and they put a whole bunch of the hospital staff on sort of self-quarantine, basically. Mm -hmm. People who weren't sick at all had to stay out of the hospital. Right. Um, you know, for me, it raises the question of how many times can you do that and still have people <laughs> left in the hospital to take care of patients? You're absolutely right. So how do you, as you know, an expert in this field, you're balancing the importance of having staff in the hospital with the fact that you don't want the disease to spread. How, how do you balance those things? What do you, how do you think this is going to play out or what are your thoughts? Sure. Well, I I would say we can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. You know, we do have um, a, a principle in general of erring on the side of caution. And so, if we had one exposure that involved some healthcare uh, employees, and we wanted to put them on quarantine, have them. Uh, furloughed from their job during a, a period, that, that is certainly an approach that we would use. However, in this kind of a situation, we have to think to scale. And, and as you're alluding to, um, we really cannot afford to furlough our healthcare workers in large numbers or we won't have anyone to take care of the patients. So we are thinking through strategies about how we will really determine the level of exposure. Um, if people follow the protocols and use personal protective equipment, the good news is that infection prevention works, and we know that we can care for patients safely, um, minimize those exposures, and then um, really use furlough in, in a very conservative manner so that we're not um, crippling ourselves by furloughing large numbers of our workforce. Right, and you're making an important point. For hospitals like Johns Hopkins, you take care of pretty serious infectious diseases on a regular basis. Correct. Tuberculosis. Not to mention varicella, varicella influenza, <laughs> right. and if I recall, you were ready for Ebola. I don't know if you got an Ebola patient, but you had the capacity for an Ebola we patient. We have an infrastructure and a biocontainment unit and, and a trained group of, of staff members who are standing ready at any moment still today to take care of a patient with viral hemorrhagic fever, right? So, so, so this isn't exactly like starting from a standing stop. Correct. Right, you are, you know, in the business of handling infectious diseases, and this is a new one which has certain characteristics. But you're sort of turning the enterprise to address it. Absolutely, it's such an important point, and I think that um, the the resources that were made available during the Ebola crisis in 2014 uh, really enabled us to put an infrastructure in place um, for that readiness, and it and. As you say, it's it's allowed us to pivot from that type of preparedness to this type of preparedness. And I would say that throughout the whole time that we prepared, we really knew that um, pandemic respiratory viral illness was the true threat that we could count on coming around again right. as a way of doing that. So how does this situation change your day-to-day -day work? 
you know, I, I, I noticed that one of the conference rooms has been converted into a little bit of a command center um, where people are busy doing all sorts of things. Um, you know, from your perspective, what, what changes for you as you're thinking about this? It has been an enormous change. Um, I would say that uh, we began this work as soon as we heard about this virus uh, and began in earnest our preparations uh, in January. So we have spent uh, several um, months now, or at least two and a half months, working towards um, a, a true comprehensive plan for how to operationalize our, our preparedness efforts. However, there have been stages of that. So at the beginning, uh, we uh, divided and conquered. We had half of our team continuing normal operations and approximately half of our team working uh, really around the clock on this kind of preparedness. Uh, I want to say that we are partnering with our emergency management colleagues very closely in this and learning so much from them about the value of incident command um, and how uh, that can leverage colleagues and, and infrastructure across the organization to really um, help with the readiness effort. But as the pandemic has evolved and spread, has continued, um, the level of activity has escalated exponentially. So um, we, we are really having to set aside some of our other projects and, and normal work and really um, all hands on deck for this effort. Well, I know um, as a former state official, the work that happens at Johns Hopkins and other places becomes extremely important to the overall preparedness of a city or a state. And in addition to the work you're doing here, people must be calling you and saying, what should we do, you know, at the state level? What should we do at the city level? I know I was calling you a few years ago on that. So you've got to handle your job here. You've got to advise other people about their job. You have to be in contact with different things that are going on and be ready to speak up to make sure that there are not any policies that are undermining the work you're trying to do. You're absolutely right. Johns Hopkins is a, a very large and complex organization, and um, uh, we are uh, critical partners with uh, public health authorities at the city and the state level and, and throughout the region and, and nationally as well. So there's a lot of coordination and conversations. Um, and for our enterprise here, uh, you know, it's a two-way street. So we are looking to um, the public health authorities also to help lead that regional approach and how that might impact our preparedness. So um, last question for you. Um, there are a lot of people who are anxious about this mm -hmm. um, new disease. Um, and uh, we've gotten all sorts of questions. We set up a way for people to send in questions. We get over 700 questions. Wow. <laughs> um, a lot of them have to do with, should I travel here? Should I travel there? What do you think? A lot of them have to do with um, their own personal health situation. I have this condition. Does it make sense for me to keep taking my medicines? Other things like that. And, mm -hmm. um, I think that the unknown is such a big source of anxiety. And I just um, wonder from your, you know, um, how you would, what message you would send for what people can do realistically now, how they should think about this, knowing that there are a lot of places like Johns Hopkins that are really prepared, that they see this as their job, that, you know, how, how does that help in some ways to address some of that kind of unformed anxiety out there? Well, I think as you've described very well, that fear and, and panic uh, can be as paralyzing as 
as disease, and, and it sometimes becomes a barrier to taking concrete actions for preparedness. I'm going to wait. So um, I guess my advice would be uh, to remain calm and um, take uh, comfort in the fact that organizations and healthcare professionals are making these plans, public health uh, authorities are making these plans and, and implementing them uh, to keep our communities and, and our patients safe. Uh, and then I think it's very empowering to take concrete steps uh, of your own for your own preparedness at home, for your family. It, it's not unlike a, a preparing for a weather event or something. Uh, the same kinds of considerations come into play. Um, and then finally, I, I think I would say, and um, it, it is frightening to have a pandemic, but I, I think that we can um, look at the overall picture and know that the majority of people, even if they get this disease, are going to have relatively mild or self-limited illness. And so um, that should be somewhat reassuring. And I would have a request of, of people um, that if and when that happens, it's very important to um, reach out for medical um, input and guidance, but don't necessarily rush in to clinics and emergency departments because just realize that you're part of a, of a larger system and we want to have everyone get the care that they need. Uh, we are putting strategies in place, however, to help support people to recover at home um, and um, using telemedicine and other strategies, home care uh, colleagues, to uh, provide services and advice um, and, and allow those um, worried well and mildly ill uh, to get through this uh, without um, necessarily exposing others in the healthcare setting and also saving the, the resources for those who do become more ill and need it. So in other words, know that you're here, but also know that um, everybody can do things to protect themselves too. Absolutely. We can all play a role. We all need to play a role. Great. Well, I certainly feel uh, much better having had this conversation. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to me. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Public Health On Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Please send questions to be covered in future podcasts to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. That's publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. This podcast is produced by Josh Sharpstein, Lindsay Smith-Rogers, and Lamari Morales. Audio production by Niall Owen McCusker with support from Chip Hickey. Distribution by Nick Moran. Thank you for listening.